Many of you have probably heard the name Norman Vincent Peale. In the 40s and 50s, Peale was the most famous pastor in America. Peale had a radio show. He founded Guideposts magazine, paved the way for notables like Oral Roberts, Robert Schuller, Joel Osteen, and Oprah, and even pastored Donald Trump and officiated his first wedding. What really put Norman Vincent Peale on the map was his 1952 book, The Power of Positive Thinking. The book was on the New York Times bestsellers list for 186 weeks and sold millions of copies. In the preface of the book, Peale wrote this, in formulating this simple philosophy of life, I found my own answers in the teachings of Jesus Christ. I have merely tried to describe those truths in the language and thought forms understandable to present day people. Well, that sounds pretty good. But Peel's first chapter in the book is titled, Believe in Yourself. And begins like this, believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy, end of quote. Tim Challies, a popular Christian blogger, said this about Peel. His foremost contribution to the world was this notion that thoughts are causative, that our thoughts can change our lives, our health, our destiny. Readers were thrilled with this notion that if they believed it, they could have it or be it or do it. End of quote. Now, some would call this faith. Some would, would say faith is positive thinking that shapes our future. Believe something strong enough and your act of believing and your accompanying effort actually bring about the future you envision. You can imagine how someone who thinks this way might misread what Jesus says in verse 29. According to your faith, be it done to you. Positive thinking philosophy turns faith into the work one does to achieve their wildest dreams, and this is very dangerous. True faith is different. True faith is not a work. True faith is not the means by which strong people reach out and grab what they want and the weak people languish because their faith isn't enough. That's superstition. That's self-help. That's humanism, but that's not true faith. True faith is belief in Christ. Faith in Christ's abilities, humble and reasonable confidence in the power of Christ and trust in the providence and provision of God in Christ. Faith is not the powerful grab of the strong who reach their greatest goals through effort, but the open hands of the weak who receive their greatest blessings in Christ through faith. Today, I want you to think about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the nature of true faith. By the end of the sermon, I hope that I have helped you answer this question. How can I be certain that I actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? What is mercy? What is grace? Mercy is God's pity, God's compassion, God's tenderness towards sinners, God seeing sinners in misery and being moved to help. Mercy is God withholding deserved judgment and instead giving undeserved kindness. 
and so closely related to mercy is grace. Grace is God's undeserved kindness, God's favor, God's goodwill, God's kingdom gifts and blessings enjoyed by those who receive his mercy. So the question is, how can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? Well, that's an important question because true joy and well-being derive from having the mercy and grace of Jesus. Doubt, well, doubt only undermines our joy and well-being. When you know that you have the mercy and grace of Jesus, well, then you are free to live and die in the joy of the comfort of truly belonging to Christ. And so this is a very important question for you to answer. How can I be certain that I actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus. Our text today helps answer the question. And my goal is that you would have true comfort and assurance in knowing you have the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus. I begin with some preliminary thoughts. Israel's anticipation of the Messiah's healing. This background adds richness to Matthew. There was an expectation among God's Old Testament covenant people that the Lord would heal them. In fact, would give sight to the blind. Psalm 146 verse 9 says, The Lord, or Yahweh, opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah gave the same message of hope. Isaiah 35 verses 3 through 6. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the, weeble, uh, the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. God was going to come and save his covenant people. In that day, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would leap, and the mute would sing. When these wonders happened, it would be a sign of the coming of the Lord and his kingdom. Then in Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 8, the Lord addresses the Messiah. Yahweh says to the Messiah, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for, my pe for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes, eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Israel anticipated the Messiah coming as a covenant, a light for the nations, and he would open the eyes of the blind. When the eyes of the blind are opened, it displays the fulfillment of God's promise of the Messiah and the coming kingdom. Israel had that expectation. Now, there were incredible miracles done in the Old Testament, but one miracle never happened in the Old Testament. No blind person received sight. The healing of the blind would be a unique miracle for the Messianic age. And if the Messiah can open the physical eyes of the blind, imagine what he does for the eyes of the soul. One other thought. 
John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the forerunner sent to make way for the Christ. John had been unjustly imprisoned. He had heard about the miracles of Jesus, made some connections to the Old Testament truths and ex expectations, and, and sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, are you really the promised Messiah? Now that's surprising that John would ask that. After all, he was the God-ordained forerunner of the Christ, and he knew that. But I think at that moment, John needed assurance. That's how I take it. He needed assurance. And Jesus kindly answered John like this, please keep Isaiah 35 and 42, and then Israel's expectation of the Messiah in mind here. Jesus wanted to comfort John in his weakness, so, John, so Jesus told John's disciples this, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' words echo Isaiah. Jesus was in effect telling John, my dear man, my dear man, remember God's covenant promises. Remember the signs of the coming Messiah. It's happening, John. The Messiah has come and I am bringing the kingdom. What would it mean? If Jesus actually made the blind see, it would have massive messianic and kingdom implications. So back to the question, how can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? Number one, you must know your need of mercy and grace. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us. Son of David. These two blind men knew they needed God's mercy and grace. Their awareness of their need of mercy and grace drove them to Jesus to cry out for his mercy and grace. If you jump down to verse 32, you see that the demon-oppressed mute man was brought to Jesus. Why? He had a need. Was he aware? Did, did he have faith? I don't think so. But at least the people bringing him to Jesus realized his great need. Those who ignore the need of God's mercy, their need of God's mercy and grace, do not long for Jesus to give them mercy and grace. They're too busy assuming everything's okay or that Jesus can't help them. Those who are most attracted to Jesus and who cry out for his compassion are those most aware of their need. Think about what Jesus said earlier in chapter 9. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Sick people know that they need a doctor. Need drives people to Jesus. And the more we know our need and his ability to meet our need, the more we cry out to him for his mercy and for his grace. How much time do vegans spend in the butcher shop? None. Vegans avoid butcher shops because they feel no pressing need to eat meat. Their loss. So how can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? First, you must know your daily need of his mercy and grace. 
Number two, you must know the true identity of Jesus. A woman named Sophie shared a, a funny story online about her dad and his sister. Sophie's dad and his sister were both swimmers uh, doing laps at the local pool, and the sister noticed her brother taking a break at pool's edge, and so she swam up behind him, and she put both of her hands on his head, and she dunked him. And as he's flailing in the water, her actual brother swam past. So make sure you have the right guy. You will not receive the mercy and grace of Jesus if you have the wrong Jesus. There are false Jesuses, you know. The Jesus of Islam is not God's son. The Jesus of Mormonism has not always been God and had to earn his God status. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses is a created being. The Jesus of New Age philosophy is a spiritually attuned or evolved being who serves as an example for spiritual discovery and evolutionary advancement. There are more. To receive the mercy and grace of God, you must know the true identity of Jesus. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. That title is important. The blind men were saying something unique. The title, son of David, well, it appears uh, various places in Matthew, but right at the beginning, we know that the title is a big theme in Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 1, right from the beginning, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. From the very beginning, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the son promised to David in the Davidic covenant. He, here's, here's the covenant of grace to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. The Lord told David this. Listen closely. And many of you in the covenant theology series have heard this before. It's a good reminder. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, Solomon is certainly in view there. But ultimately, Solomon and the Davidic throne are shadows of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Solomon was a royal type or shadow of Christ. God's covenant people were anticipating God raising up David's son, whose throne and kingdom would be forever. The throne of David was typological for the throne of God himself. 1 Chronicles 29, 23 says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father. Do you understand that? The Davidic throne represented God's throne. One source noted, with the coming of the Davidic monarchy then, 
God's kingdom had already come to some extent, but it remained a shadow of a greater future reality. End of quote. The Davidic monarchy foreshadowed the greater reign and rule of Christ. Son of David is a messianic title, a kingdom title, an eternal reign and rule title. So when the two blind men shouted out, have mercy on us, son of David, they were connecting Jesus to the Old Testament and the messianic age and believed the kingdom had come to them in some way. They, they had heard of Jesus' miraculous healings and wanted him to extend mercy to them. No one in redemptive history had ever been healed of blindness. But the messianic age promised it, and these men seemed to make that connection. Notice the opposite in verse 34. The Pharisees didn't connect Jesus to the, to the promised son of David and his eternal kingdom, but rather to Satan. Talk about missing it. They knew his power and authority. They had heard and seen his power and authority, but their sin and their misery blinded them to the glorious identity and ministry of Jesus, the son of David, the one promised. No one who has the wrong Jesus or attaches the power and authority of Jesus to Satan will receive the mercy and grace of God. Impossible. Now, my kids, they don't worry much about me giving them good things. Why? They know me and my love for them. How can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? Well, do you know Jesus as the son of David reigning and ruling from the throne forever? Do you know who Jesus as he do, do you know Jesus rather as he has revealed himself in his word? The Bible. If you have the right Jesus, if you know the true Jesus, then you know you have his mercy and grace. Number three, you must come to Jesus humbly asking for mercy and grace. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. They were crying out to the son of David, but Jesus didn't respond immediately, did he? They, they had to come to the house that he entered, presumably the place that he was staying. He, he didn't respond, but they didn't give up. They persisted and came to him in the house. Their need and their persistent faith took them to Jesus to humbly ask for mercy and grace, to keep at it. Jesus then examined their faith. He asked, do you believe that I am able to do this? If you want my kingdom blessings, do you actually trust me? Remember Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Remember Isaiah 35 and 42. Did they believe the messianic age had come at the arrival of Jesus? Did they believe the kingdom had come? They answered, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, they, they believed with true saving faith. They believed that Jesus was the Christ and could heal them body and soul. His abilities, power, effect, compassion, mercy, and grace. Well, they were all clear to them. 
If he willed, they would receive mercy and grace. Again, in verse 32, in regards to the demon-oppressed mute man, someone believed in the mercy of Jesus enough to bring the man to Jesus. See, knowing that Jesus can help is not good enough. You must come to Jesus for his mercy and grace. Some people might think that they have done so much evil that God would never forgive them, would never extend to them mercy and grace. Quora is a question and answer website, and someone posted this question. I feel so bad like God can't forgive me, and I don't deserve the good things in life because of all that I've done. I feel doomed. Is there a way to not feel like this? That's called unbelief. And the answer is yes, there is a way to not feel like that. And it begins with true faith in the mercy and grace of God extended to you in Christ. The, the feeling of God can't forgive me is overcome by true faith in the mercy and grace of God in Christ. We may struggle with feeling like this. We may identify with days where we feel like that. But the feeling is combated with true and persistent faith in the gospel that says he gives his mercy and grace to those who ask, to those who come to him no matter what they've done. Jesus drew out their confession and they affirmed that indeed they believed that he was the son of David, the Messiah, who could truly help them. In fact, he was Lord. They saw him as the Lord. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to ask for help. You know, you know how you can be sometimes. It's like we have the bubonic plague and we're dehydrated. We're not keeping any food down. We're completely anemic and the lawn needs to be mowed. So we're out there trying to mow the lawn because it needs to get done. And our neighbor comes by. Hey, man, can I give you a hand? No, I can get it as we creep along at a snail's pace, ready to pass out. Because, you see, if we accept help, then that makes us look weak and needy, and, and we might be a bother to somebody. And so, no, no, I have this. And this pride and this self-sufficiency often contaminates our view of the gospel. Let me be quite candid. Listen very carefully. When it comes to the mercy and grace of Christ, self-starters, Self-sufficient spiritual DIYers, those who refuse to ask God for anything, go to hell. They haven't sensed their great need, so they haven't come to Christ and asked for mercy and grace, for deliverance, so they obviously don't receive his mercy and grace. The people who receive Jesus' mercy and grace, those who enter the kingdom, are those who humbly approach the king from a position of incalculable need and who persistently plead with the king for his mercy and grace. If you, if you look at your life and you are concerned about the bad thoughts that you have, the bad things that you say, the bad things that you do, if you're concerned looking back at your bad past, 
you may think that all your badness prohibits you from receiving the mercy and grace of God, but that's simply unbelief. Your sin and misery must not drive you away from Jesus, but to Jesus to ask him for mercy and grace and to receive his mercy and grace. This is how you know you have his mercy and grace. You find yourself continually asking him for his mercy and grace. Four, you must believe in the power, authority, and readiness of Jesus to give you mercy and grace. This is very important. What's the use of, of asking if you do not also believe you will receive? It's like the guy who asks his friend for $5 but walks away as his friend reaches into his pocket. Do you actually believe Jesus wants to give you good things and will give you good things? So we must ask expecting to get. A child boldly asks his loving mother for food because he knows she's kind and she is ready to give. But an anxious child reluctantly asks his abusive mother for food because it's quite possible he'll get a smack instead of soup. Now, does our approach to Jesus match the temperament of Jesus? It does not honor him if we ask but refuse to believe he'll give. We need to trust he has the power. We need to trust he has the authority. We need to trust that he is ready to give us mercy and grace when we ask him. Jesus asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And their simple answer of faith was, yes, Lord. They believed in his power. They believed in his authority. They believed in his readiness to help. Now, did the blind men ever see a miracle of Jesus? No, they were blind. They couldn't see anything. They had only heard about Jesus from others, yet they still believed he could grant mercy and grace to them. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus touched their eyes and they saw. In verse 33, Jesus cast out the demon and the mute man spoke. That's the power and authority we've been seeing in Matthew. But please don't miss Jesus' readiness to extend his mercy and grace to those who, who need them, to those who come to him ready to receive them. It's mistaken to think that Jesus will not accept and love a sinner who humbly comes with their need, asks for mercy and grace, and believes Jesus will, will give. Who can sin beyond his reach? Jesus gives sight to the blind. Therefore, he also gives sight to the eyes of the soul of the worst of the soul-blinded sinners. So, brothers and sisters, as you look to Jesus with spiritual sight, with true faith, it proves you have received his mercy and grace enough to see. Do you believe Jesus loves you so much that he is ready and willing to help you whenever you go to him for help. Calvin encourages us at this point. He said, if we pray in faith, we will never sustain a refusal in our prayers. But if those two men whose faith was small and imperfectly formed obeyed what they wished, or I'm sorry, obtained what they wished, 
Much more efficacious will now be the faith of those who, endued with the spirit of adoption and relying on the sacrifice of Christ, shall approach to God. Calvin is saying that if we come to Jesus trusting his power, authority, and readiness to give us grace, we will not be refused. We might be refused a promotion, a new car, maybe more comfortable circumstances, but we will not be refused the mercy and grace that we need for the circumstances we are in. Calvin is saying that the two blind men had small and imperfect faith, and they received what they desired. Now, how much more then do we who have a full view of the gospel receive mercy and grace when we approach God? Where, so just think about your life, think about your hardships, afflictions, Think about where you are most weak. Where in your life do you really need God's mercy and grace? Well, we need it in every area. But what comes to mind, to the forefront, where you, you're desperate for his mercy and grace in that area? Saints, he is ready to grant what you need for that really big thing. You must humbly come to Jesus confident in his readiness and sufficiency to give to you. Yes, Lord, is, is the essence of it. Saints, true faith is a firm confidence that God has given his mercy and grace to you. I like what Article 26 of the Belgic Confession says. Let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. Isn't that good? Now our faith may be little, it may be small, it may be weak, but it clings to the hope that we will receive mercy and grace from our Savior who bought us. We belong to him and he will provide. Let me ask you this. Is your answer to Jesus, yes, Lord, Yes, I believe you are able. I believe you are ready. I believe you will. Thank you for providing for me. I, I think Heidelberg 116 helps us here. It asks, why is prayer necessary for Christians? And part of the answer is just great for us in this sermon. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. It's very helpful. Now, if you're thanking God for his grace and Holy Spirit, you must also be believing you have received his grace and Holy Spirit, and that's faith. How can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus? Number five, you must receive the mercy and grace of Jesus through faith alone. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Will the beggar complain that he has no money when he's counting the money that he just received? You are sure you receive when you receive through faith. Verse 29 is easily misunderstood. I found this interesting, but the Jerusalem Bible is a Catholic Bible. Uh, it's the source of the lectionary for mass used in Catholic worship in the majority of the English-speaking world outside of the United States and, and Canada. And the Jerusalem Bible study note on verse 29 interprets Jesus as, your faith deserves it. 
Your faith deserves it. Think about that. Did Jesus mean your faith deserves it? No, no, that's to twist his meaning and ignores that the Holy Spirit works faith in the heart. Faith is the means, the instrument, the channel through which Jesus dispenses his mercy and grace, which no one deserves. It's like Jesus was saying, men, since you believe that I am the son of David, since you believe that I have the ability to heal you, I give to you what you ask through that faith. Jesus responds to even little and weak faith. Jesus doesn't refuse to give mercy and grace to those who ask him in true faith, which is worked in their heart by the Holy Spirit. We, we may not always receive mercy and grace in the manner that we think we should, but we will always receive. In verse 30, the blind men receive sight from Jesus, but Jesus sternly warns them not to spread the news, likely because it would distract from his true mission and ministry. That's a lot to think through, more to be said on that. Why would he not want them to spread it? But it just wasn't the time, and, and I think it probably would have distracted from his true ministry and mission. In, in verse 31, we see that the men disobeyed Jesus. They didn't even listen. That's not gratitude. Um, Leon Morris said, but they lacked obedience. They did not supplement their deep conviction that Jesus could give them sight with an equally deep resolve to do his will. End quote. We will receive the mercy and grace of Christ through the faith the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and receiving should always lead us to obeying. Guilt, grace, gratitude. That's the progression. Look at verses 33 and 34. The crowd marveled at the astonishing sight, but nothing is said about their faith. The Pharisees see and accuse Jesus of satanic activity. And so verse 34 is actually alerting us to the fact that the tension surrounding Jesus was escalating. And we know where the animosity leads. The brutal cross. Verse 34 is a cold it's, it's, it's the cold and callous rancor of unbelief. Unbelief leads to dark and dangerous places. So dear brothers and sisters, I want you to find deep comfort and assurance and joy in God's daily provision of mercy and grace in Christ. I want you to receive what you need every day and, and to be thankful for how your loving Savior provides. So how can you be certain that you actually have the mercy and grace of Jesus that you need for today? It's quite simple. Number one, you must know your need of mercy and grace. Number two, you must know the true identity of Jesus. Number three, you must come to Jesus humbly asking for his mercy and grace. Number four, you must believe in the power, authority, and readiness of Jesus to give you mercy and grace. And number five, you must receive the mercy and grace of Jesus through faith alone. And all of this should lead you to what? To gratitude, to obedience. Now, might you see a parallel in Heidelberg too? Heidelberg 1 describes what our only comfort in life and death is. We belong to Christ, our faithful Savior. And then Heidelberg 2 asks, what do you need to know in order to live 
and die in the joy of this comfort? Well, listen to the three things we must know. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. See any parallel? Brothers and sisters, the power of Jesus, which gave sight to the blind, gave sight to our souls. Amen? And we see the glory of Christ. We see with our souls. We believe. Now let us obey him with gratitude. Tell people of the riches of his mercy and grace. Bear witness. Now's the time. As you see him and as you love what you see, obey him with thankfulness.